you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. You know, we're experiencing a paradigm shift, and I don't know how the world doesn't change. I don't know how things don't react and respond to this in a way that creates a different landscape. That's Akiva Goldsman, screenwriter of films like A Beautiful Mind and The Da Vinci Code. Our job is to open the minds up of our directors and our producers and our studio executives to point out that this particular role doesn't need to be a white guy in his 40s. It could be a woman, it could be a person of color, it can be a little person, it can be a different age. And that's David Rubin. He's a casting director and president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I'm John Horn. As Akiva Goldsman describes it, the entertainment industry is in the middle of a paradigm shift that will change every aspect of the business. But that shift brings a chance to fix many of the problems, like equity and inclusiveness, that Hollywood has only talked about until now. If you listen to industry leaders, the road to Hollywood's future is being paved with good intentions. But how does that actually translate into action? This is Hollywood, the sequel. Welcome to our podcast. It's where we ask some of the entertainment industry's brightest minds how Hollywood might reinvent itself as it comes out of the pandemic. Akiva Goldsman is a screenwriter, director, and producer. His TV credits include Star Trek Picard, but he's best known for his Oscar-winning screenplay for A Beautiful Mind. You probably saw that movie in a theater. Remember what that was like? Goldsman's current project is the feature film Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. And he says he's not really worried about where audiences are going to see it. Well, I, perhaps controversially or not, am pretty platform agnostic. There's delight in going out to see a thing, and there's delight in staying home to see a thing. And for me, I want eyes on it that want to watch it. I'm interested in the most people welcoming it as possible. And I'm interested in it being in the place where it can be best presented. Uh, and, and that, to me, can be one place, both places. Hopefully it's not neither place. I, I'm still not ready for it just to exist on my iPhone. But I, uh, I don't know whether things have to be one thing or another. Does that mean that we are at a point where all of the assumptions that the industry has followed can be challenged? There's so many institutionalized ways about how things are done. Like movies play in theaters for three months before they hit streaming or video on demand sites. That a TV show has to shoot a pilot and a network has to sign off on it before it goes into production. When you think about what could and maybe should be different going forward, even in the back of your mind, do you start put together kind of a, a wish list of how things could be different that make a lot more sense? 
Well, I, I do think, John, that, you know, in the old days, you know, probably the first time you and I sat together when we both had hair, um, you know, there was really this hard boundary between the two. And um, I think fundamentally there's been this interesting exchange of talent now and quality has risen. Um, certainly uh, in television, you know, it, it is in equal measure uh, a profoundly successful narrative delivery system. It is also additionally now sort of advantaged by this idea of an eight hour narrative. Like, you know, from a writer's point of view, holy shit. I mean, who doesn't want that? Like, wait, wait, I can tell the story in two or I can tell it in eight or 10 or 30. Well, that starts to create a whole other set of expectations and opportunities. It's funny because if you think about movies starting out, there were Saturday morning serials, right? So why shouldn't we in fact have serialized motion pictures just as we also have closed-ended television objects or streaming objects? Like I think the more we become flexible and break these boundaries that I think were actually based on production needs and limitations that no longer exist, I think that suddenly we have this fluid idea of what entertainment is. Do you think on the other side of this, there are companies and maybe talent agencies, studios, movie theater chains that we know by name that won't be around? I mean, is there going to be, you know, some consolidation? Are some people not going to make it out of this intact? Well, I, I honestly believe that we were even before this at a point where things would have to consolidate sooner than later that, you know, that there's so, so many different just streaming systems, for example, that at a certain point they would have to, to sort of find a way to eat each other or absorb each other or become part of each other. Um, I think that we are, you know, we're experiencing a paradigm shift. We're actually in, we're living in one. And I think one thing that is always true when you're, in a paradigm shift is you can't quite see it because you're in it. You think you're holding uh, a piece of a ledge uh, above your head, but in fact, it might be inverted. You might be heading straight down and that rock might be pulling you towards the bottom. It's impossible to see from the inside. I don't know how the world doesn't change. I don't know how things don't react and respond to this in a way that creates a different landscape. I do also believe that people want entertainment, that this has always been the case, that somehow to be distracted, to be transported, to be inspired, to have the opportunity to, you know, as they say, laugh or cry, or in our time, especially to remember what it feels like to be empathetic, to learn from others' experiences. Like that's going to be out there somehow. How we craft it, I don't know. Writers are always trying to process what's going on in the world. And sometimes there's a long lag between what they're thinking about, what they're talking about, what they're obsessing over, and when that's reflected in new scripts. Given that lag, are you starting to reassess the kinds of stories that you want to tell? I mean, is there a way to take a show like Picard and maybe even in a vague way, start writing about what we're going through now. I don't know if there's a pandemic plot that fits Star Trek, but are you starting to think about allegories and metaphors for what's happening now that you can 
applied as some fictional stories? Yes, I, I, I think the very first thing that's sort of happening is, is sort of almost a an intellectual vetting process, which is not necessarily even about what we're making, but what we've made, right? How will that feel? Like I, for example, think there will be, for a period of time, a cognitive dissonance when you watch a movie with crowd scenes. I feel it sometimes when I'm watching, a, a you know, if I'm home now watching something, I'm like, whoa, those people are all together. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's starting to change our experience of what we see. Um, you know, I find that, of course, science fiction is more flexible when it comes to allegory. Um, and so um, often you will find in Star Trek, for example, that, you know, issues of plagues have been the, the watchword of the episode or the plot. I think that, like 9-11, it's going to take a second to settle. Um, we're, we're still in the midst of it. Uh, I was in New York on that day and, and, and the weeks and months after. And, you know, and I, I find that in a weird way, the possibility for storytelling around that is just emerging, you know, um, that it's tough. You have to metabolize these things. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I don't know how this will affect storytelling. I think it will, but I doubt it's in the ways we imagine. As for how the pandemic affects the actual production of stories, Goldsman sees that picture more clearly. I don't think that it can ever really go back to the way it used to be. Um, I think that there are advantages that I have found for sure. I, you know, will we ever really get 35 people together for a production meeting? you know, where people actually typically are not working on site and they all have to drive. I mean, virus notwithstanding, like I think today you just kind of go, well, let's zoom, you know, you're saving the two hours to get to and from. So I think in some ways it will help us. Uh, I think the other thing, it will help us be efficient. I think the other, the downside of that is it is yet again, another death of the time between things. Um, Remember when we were young, there was all this time between things, you know, you had to, go from one place to another. You would walk there. You could even go out and not know what your messages were until you got home. And then uh, suddenly there was the car phone. So there wasn't really time between. And then there was the internet. Well, now there's no time between because you can just zoom, click to the next, zoom, click to the next. Um, so I think that the empty time starts to vanish more and more. But I, I think that there's a, a natural human pull towards company, um, towards uh, being in a room with each other, uh, and I, and even not when it comes to the making of things, even in the thinking about and talking about things, I think we'll still end up in writers' rooms together. I hope so. When we come back, casting director David Rubin, whose credits include Big Little Lies and Game Change. One of the great joys of the arts and of film and television in particular is to hold a mirror up to society. And all too often, uh, we've been holding up a funhouse mirror and not a realistic one. And we'll hear how one independent filmmaker is navigating the new onset safety protocols. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Welcome back to Hollywood The Sequel. I'm John Horn. As difficult as these times are, the fact that everyone's minds and hearts are turning to these issues is a good thing. Casting director David Rubin was just re-elected president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And Rubin says Hollywood can and must do better. Ostensibly, we have an obligation to create an authentic world on screen. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be total reality because not every film and story is, is, is real life. But under the, under the strictures of a particular narrative, we have to represent a world that's accurate and authentic, and particularly if it's a realistic piece. So it's incumbent upon us to, to mirror the world. I mean, one of the great joys of the arts and of film and television in particular is to hold a mirror up to society. And all too often, uh, we've been holding up a funhouse mirror and not a realistic one. And I feel we need to get back to reflecting reality. Uh, Because in truth, if you want to affect an audience, an audience member is going to be most affected by seeing a world they recognize in some form or another. Um, and a manufactured artificial version of that world uh, should no longer cut it. How does a casting director factor into that equation? What can a casting director do to advance this idea of Hollywood becoming more inclusive and more diverse? I think casting directors have been uh, part of the leading charge uh, toward greater diversity on screen uh, and greater gender parity. Uh, One of the things that any good casting director does when beginning work on a particular script is to go through that screenplay and essentially ignore the very specific uh, descriptions, physically in particular, of each character. Uh, Because to take nothing away from the great work of screenwriters, those descriptions are not written for a casting director nor for a director or a producer. Those those uh, descriptions are, are written for financiers, for people who will write a check to finance a particular project with a very specific intent so that when a reader is reading that screenplay, the story is as vivid as possible and as specific as possible. Um, but when it comes around to deciding which actors are best suited to play a role, the focus should not be on those descriptors. It should be on how that character impacts the narrative. What job do they do in the telling of the story? And if you focus only on that, it opens up a myriad of possibilities in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of race. And casting directors have been hip to this for a long time, and our job is to open the minds up of our directors and our producers and our studio executives to point out that this particular role doesn't need to be a white guy in his 40s. 
It could be a woman. It could be a person of color. It can be a little person. It can be a different age. All those things are conversations as part of the collaboration between a casting director and a filmmaker. When you think about how your job will be affected by working in close proximity with other people, especially actors, how will a casting director's job be fundamentally changed by new protocols that likely will be in place once production resumes? Uh, The casting process is a very intimate dialogue between an actor and a casting director and often a director or a producer. And that happens in a room where interaction is key because an actor comes in with a particular preparation of a scene, let's say, in an audition. And that is then further informed by the dialogue that happens in that room. Adjustments are made, specific nuances are discussed, another version of the reading takes place. And we not only get a sense of what an actor's potential final performance might be, but we get a sense of what their process is. Uh, and if we're not in a room engaging directly with, a, with an actor in that way, the information is partial. So that's, to me, the fundamental difference. Uh, the notion that it's conceivable that I would not be in a room with an actor uh, to engage in that, in that interplay is, uh, is distressing to me because I think it, it makes all the difference in the world. There are alternatives, like self-taped auditions recorded by the actors at home, and there are also live online audition platforms. It's what Ruben prefers. I am reading with an actor while they are doing the scene. I am giving notes after the initial reading. We're recording all of it. I am then passing along the best version of an audition to the filmmaker, the way I would normally do in a casting room. So it's, it's again, different from being in the same room, but it's a, it's a facsimile of it. I think the, the, the feeling one gets uh, from an actor in a room and the things that result in notes given, uh, conversations had about things completely aside from uh, the material at hand are all essential parts of it and I will miss them terribly if they're gone forever. And finally... I'm Anna Lydia Monaco. I am a writer, director, producer, otherwise known as a filmmaker. We've asked a lot on this podcast about what it's going to be like when production resumes again. Well, here's one filmmaker who can answer that question. Anna Lydia Monaco just made a short film called Lola. It was shot over a couple of days, and she filmed it with COVID safety protocols in place. You see, can she? And you can even make it like blurrier. But that's good, you see? And you can drop it a little bit more. Drop it. When the pandemic hit, I was working at an international production company as a junior creative executive on the development as well as the sales side. We started working from home early March, thinking it was only going to be a few weeks. And my work went from, we're going to cut you down to part-time to like, oh my God, maybe five hours a week, literally within a week. Uh, Coincidentally, I was in pre-production for my film, Lola. So I pretty much went hard at it because I didn't have any paid work. There was no paid work in town anyways. There's no productions, there's nothing happening. 
Lola. 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 Lola focuses on the story of a woman of color who is coping with intense physical pain and then is ignored and not taken seriously because of her weight. Monaco needed about $4,000 to make her film, so she went to the crowdfunding site Seed and Spark, and in just five days, she met her goal. She was able to film in late July. There was a lot of steps to make sure that we were a COVID-safe production. You know, early on, it was recommended to just have a PA walking around and taking people's temperature. And my gut said, that's not enough. And I spent a little money and I brought in a COVID officer um, fairly early on, as well as I brought in an intimacy consultant because I did have an intimate scene. And as we know, that actually this posed some risk for the actors and everybody else involved. But even before production started, there were complications. Two of our actors got COVID. They had to be replaced. Somebody on crew didn't want to take a COVID test. Um, So we had to let him go. Monaco estimates that paying the COVID officer and buying all the necessary cleaning supplies increased her costs by about 20 percent and made her days a lot longer. It's going to take more time to set up shots. It's going to take more time to break down between shots. It's going to take more time to sanitize each location, each item. Uh, It's going to take time to prep each actor to make sure that they're ready to shoot each scene and be COVID compliant. But overall, she says things went smoothly, even with so many masks. Lead actress Marlene Luna agrees. I feel surprisingly really comfortable and fine. Everyone's taking precautions. Everyone's making sure that they have their mask on. Our COVID officers constantly going around and, you know, giving us the um, disinfectant and everything. So hand sanitizer. It's a little different with masks and everything, but it really makes me bring out more of the intention in my eyes. So that's a really good acting thing. A uh, little acting lesson there for myself. But other than that, it's great. It's great. Now Monaco hopes there'll be at least one film festival in L.A. where she can show Lola. you got to take it day by day because what the plan was in the beginning is completely different now. Next time, Oscar-winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro on what the art of storytelling has turned into. Stories are referred often as content, and the delivery system is often referred as a pipeline. That tells you about a flow rather than a mainstaying power, you know? And I think the, the culture consumes stories at a an insanely fast rate. Our thanks to Akiva Goldsman, David Rubin, Anna Lydia Monaco, and to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And please give us a rating, leave us a comment, and share the podcast. This episode of Hollywood the Sequel was produced by Shelley Lewis, Monica Bushman, and Jonathan Shiflett with help from Darby Maloney and Jessica Pilot. Our engineer and sound designer is Eduardo Perez. Our theme music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. Hollywood the Sequel is a production of LAS Studios. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, JB Hamby thinks a lot about water. 
I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.